This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello, I'm David Sun, crime correspondent with The Straits Times. And I'm Claire Huang, business correspondent with The Straits Times. And I'm Jessie Lin, a journalist with The Straits Times. You're listening to the seventh episode of a podcast series by The Straits Times called Stop Scams. Since 2016, victims have lost more than $1 billion to scams. In this episode, we are speaking with Fiona Chung, Vice President of Compliance at crypto exchange CoinHako. Fiona will be sharing about the common kinds of scams involving cryptocurrency and what precautions cryptocurrency users can take against them. Thanks for joining us today, Fiona. Hi. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you to share the various scams that we face in CoinHako. And I hope that through this sharing session, we will raise greater awareness with the people to help deter scams together. So Fiona, what is CoinHako? So basically, CoinHako is a cryptocurrency exchange platform in Singapore. It's actually one of the first platforms here in Singapore and it's also one of the longest-running exchanges in the Asia-Pacific. So within Singapore, we have over 400,000 registered users. Okay, so Fiona, can you tell us what are some of the more common scams involving cryptocurrency that CoinHako has come across? Sure. I think the most common and persistent scam that we have seen this year, uh, first and foremost, is tech support scam. So this is a very classic case where the scammers outreach to our users via an SMS or a phone call and they claim to be probably technicians or perhaps Microsoft staff to help remove malware or to help resolve certain IT issues on their mobile devices or laptops. So our users actually were convinced by the scammers and they had relinquished total control of their devices to the scammers. This enabled the scammers to retrieve sensitive information such as bank account numbers and passwords or personal data of the users. So in such cases, you can share with us some of the more memorable ones. How much do they usually lose? I mean, aside from the data, I'm quite sure, I mean, because you all run a cryptocurrency exchange, the target was also the cryptocurrency. So one of your first questions was, what are the more memorable ones? I think that a really recent one, just in July, there was an elderly man who fell prey to the tech support scheme. He was in his mid-70s and his life savings of around 400000 over Singapore dollars were moved in a transaction. So that was flagged up in our transaction monitoring system. Our officers had a look and investigated on a very timely basis. We brought it up to the authorities, specifically the anti-scam centre investigation or intervention officers who got in touch with the elderly man. And because of our timely intervention, we managed to save that $400,000 of his life savings. So to me, that was very memorable and impactful because, I mean, the elderlies are a vulnerable group of people that we do want to, of course, we want to protect our users' assets, but even more so, the vulnerable group of people. Okay, I mean, sorry, you just mentioned the man was in his mid-70s, $400,000 of his life savings. So this was in crypto? Was this elderly man actually dealing in crypto? So this elderly man had relinquished his personal data and controls due to a tech support scheme. So he may have relinquished his personal data, such as his name, his IC number, date of birth, which enables the scammers to open fictitious accounts perhaps, or to access into his bank accounts and move funds into CoinHako 
switch it to crypto and to move it elsewhere. But it was caught at CoinHako's transaction monitoring system. I see. Was he caught because it was suspicious that a, a man in his 70s was dealing cryptocurrency? I mean, it's often seen as a more uh, young, you know, novel kind of thing. Is it because he was elderly? So I think yes and no. So the very quick answer is yes, our risk rules that's embedded in our system catches various age groups. We also capture fund flow velocity, how much the value of funds that's transacted and how fast it moves in and out. So these are just one of the few rules that we have. So yes, we were able to catch the elderly man's transaction, but we do not only have rules for elderly, we also have rules catered to the behaviours of the younger generation. So yeah, we are pretty, I wouldn't say flexible, but we are pretty precise. We have pretty precise rules for various ages to capture different kind of risks, which I will talk about later, perhaps. Like for, for young people, it's not really of a tech support scheme, but maybe like a money mill risk. You know, they may be enabling scammers to move funds for a little bit of profit. Maybe you can explain to us a bit more about uh, the typical age groups um, involved in you know, dealing in cryptocurrency. I mean, is there, is there a minimum age for, for somebody to be on CoinHako? Right. We have an internal policy that we do not onboard anybody who's 18 and below. Just simply, we do not want to enable miners to deal with such a product that may seem volatile or require certain baseline knowledge to deal with. So from observation, I think most of our active users are in the age of 20s to 35. And of course, the more affluent people could be 40s, but the 20 to 30 age group are the active ones. Uh, maybe you can share with us, you know, why there are so many scams within the world of cryptocurrency, so much so that, you know, the police have classified it as a separate kind of scam category altogether. I think in this aspect, so I'll just come from the scammers kind of perspective, right? So cryptocurrency is a relatively, I would say, cross-borderless product. You can move crypto funds across borders within a fraction of time as compared to traditional banking. So this helps scammers to perhaps park funds around quicker before authorities catch up to them. That could be one way. I think they also leverage on the fact that users may not be too familiar with cryptocurrency, so they are able to inflate certain stories to lure them in, such as investment scams. I think scammers may also have the perception that, you know, cryptocurrencies are difficult to trace which I will not deny, it is rather difficult to trace even though we have the appropriate tools, but it is not impossible to trace. We are able to trace. It does require quite a bit of effort. So Fiona, I'm a bit curious because you mentioned investment scams and my understanding of how those work is that they usually take place on a fake platform, but we know that CoinHako is a legitimate platform and legitimate exchange. So how is it that uh, your team catches you know, those attempts before they are successful? So it again falls back to our risk engine where we put in certain behaviours of what we think could be scam behaviours. So uh, as I mentioned, it could be fund flow and velocity. For example, if an account was set up pretty quickly, if a large amount of funds were moved in and out in a very short frame of time, we would have flagged that out for review. So that, that's not specific to investment scam, but a variety of scams. Can you share what are some of the safety measures? Because, for instance, at the banks, um, they do have a waiting period, a cooling-off period. But uh, what does uh, CoinHako put in place? 
So rather than having cooling periods, because, okay, bearing in mind the nature of crypto is because it's very fast moving, it's cross-border, right? Having that cooling period will be counterintuitive to, to the, the nature of the product itself. The safeguards that we have is, of course, having a very robust transaction monitoring risk engine system that plugs in several rules, including the behaviors of our customer. We also place limits, transactional limits on customers, depending on how low, medium, high risk we perceive them to be. We also roll out knowledge-based articles to educate our customers to make them aware that there are such scam happenings. So I think these are some of the measures that we are very consistent in taking. So Fiona, I'd like to find out if, you know, like some banks and payment providers around the world, right, what they do is they reimburse from their own pocket when these scams happen, you know, and the victims. Um, so does CoinHako have a policy like that? Uh, no, we do not have a policy like that because I think that this is a product, when people trade in this product and when people do cryptocurrency, we already make known the risks upfront to the users. We paste disclaimers everywhere from our website to the trading app itself. So it is difficult for you not to see those disclaimers, right? In the first place. And even though we already have those notices, we also have safeguards in place, like the transaction monitoring engines that we have. We also have pre and post transaction monitoring. We also employ world class uh, on chain monitoring tools to track the blockchain. So, in terms of due diligence and working to safeguard our customers' assets, we have already done our best. But I must say, you know, there are certain times where customers refuse to cooperate with us when we had questioned them, what is the purpose of your transaction? This is really for us to understand and help the users, but they, it could be that they lack trust in us as we are a cryptocurrency firm, or they have been directed by the scammers to lie to us. That happens pretty often. So what we do is we refer these users, whom we suspect are victims, to the police for intervention. And ultimately, should we have already employed all these measures, but you know, they, they still end up being scammed. I think as an entity, we have already sufficiently, to the best of our efforts and resource, already done everything. But it is not for us to reimburse the scam victims, their losses. Yeah, I think what you mentioned actually covers quite a few issues. For example, right, I think one of the things for law enforcement, uh, one of the challenges faced by them is basically the fact that uh, cryptocurrency on blockchain, you know, is irreversible, anonymous and global, right, which used to be a blockchain's uh, selling points and highly uh, touted uh, to the rest of the world. But this has now become a double-edged sword and investigators generally lack the resources to do this. On top of that, you have the problem of KYCs, know your client. And KYCs information right now, you know, of course, exchanges around the world argue that our KYCs are very robust. Uh, a lot of the, if you ask law enforcement, a lot of the KYCs are often the information given is garbage or even false. So that makes it hard, you know, when law enforcers uh, need to track or link the crypto wallets with stolen funds to real identities. So you've got layers and layers of problems throughout. Then my question to you is, as an exchange, where does the buck stop? Then does it mean then you should not be getting clients that are more vulnerable for that instance because they might not be as financially literate 
and things, you know, happen quite easily, you know, even to people uh, who are educated. So then, yeah, where does the buck stop? Right. So firstly, on KYC, regarding the accuracy of the customers, uh, we actually use MyInfo, which is a Singapore-based data, to extract the information. And for corporates, we use ACRA. So we always leverage on golden source of truth, like sources in which are government-based, government-registered, or to the extent that we collect passport information. And additionally, we also have biometric tools, facial recognition, to match to the documents to ensure there's no impersonation scam risk. So that's the first step. We do employ a few technologies. So the KYC information, to the best of our knowledge, should be accurate. It's sourced from the golden documents. And we have biometric tests. Now, secondly, I think in terms of transaction monitoring, it could be anonymous. Some, some wallets address could be anonymous. Yes, yes and no. So I think one of the things that I've seen evolving on the on-chain monitoring tool, which is a tool helped to track the crypto transactions, is that they have started to put more details inside. For example, this specific address has interacted with this entity or this wallet X amount of times or Y amount of times. They are able to flag up frequent interactions or the on-chain tools are able to say, actually, this address belongs to whichever exchange uh, for famous exchange like FTX, Binance or, or KuCoin, whatever. So we see more details being put out by the on-chain monitoring tools itself. It's not perfect, but it does give us more visibility to help track transactions. Your last point was on financial literacy. So I think this is also one of the very hot topics that amongst the crypto industry, we are also having discussions right now, industry-wide discussions. To what extent, you know, should crypto exchange put frictions in between customer onboarding and allowing them to use certain products and services? For example, should we make them undergo some knowledge-based articles reading? Should we put them through some tests? Upon passing certain tests, then we allow tiered release of products and services to customers. So if you pass test A, we release product A to you. If you pass test B, we release product B to you. So that is, I would say, theoretically very ideal. But that also puts in friction to the customer's experience, which is something as a business we have to consider. Right, so I don't really have a clear-cut answer as to what is the best practice right now, but it's definitely one of the hotter topics being debated right now. So, you know, another common modus operandi in scams would be authorized push payment frauds, where basically customers are tricked into sending money to a scammer. So I think if you look at the UK, for instance, what happens over there is 10 of the largest banks and payment providers have agreed to compensate fraud victims out of their own pockets, which explains why I was asking whether Hoin Hako is, you know, has that policy or so. But they will not pay them under certain circumstances. For example, if a customer ignores a warning and things like that. So are you also seeing, you know, authorized push payment frauds in Coin Hako? As far as I understand, the authorized push payment fraud uh, isn't a common typology that we have seen in Coin Hako. Um, just now I've shared that, you know, tech support scheme is, is the most common one we have seen throughout the year. And the next is actually investment schemes where the users may have been baited by an online advertisement to invest an amount of cryptocurrency for an abnormally large amount of returns. So that is the second one. And the third one, which is a very classic scam, is called Love Scam, 
But it's not limited to love though. There could be people who are looking for love and or companionship, platonic companionship. And once they have built a virtual relationship with the scammers for usually an extended period of time, the scammers will start to ask the victims to remit money on a very urgent basis for like medical bills, living expenses, or to relocate or to possibly come to travel to Singapore so that, you know, they can meet and they always ask the users to reimburse the scammers. So I think these are the three main typologies, but not really the authorized push payments. Sorry, you you were just mentioning about the love scam part. I think I just want to ask, you know, shouldn't people be more wary at this point of time already? I mean, if somebody tells you, hey, transfer me uh, X amount of money in crypto, isn't that supposed to be like a red flag for most people? Right. So the very interesting thing about love scams is that the happenings, they don't really fluctuate too much. It's always there, but it's never too high or too low. So it's something that's very persistently there. And the thing about love scams is that it never really takes place within just a couple of days. It's usually a very long-drawn relationship where the users are already very emotionally invested in the stories of the scammers. I must say that scammers generally have very, I would say, probably a very good EQ <laughs> in general, and they're very hardworking. You know, they actually um, captivate the emotional needs of various users, which is their weakest link. And once the users are convinced, it is usually quite difficult for us to convince the users in a very short amount of time to say, hey, look, this is a scam. This, this, this doesn't make sense. This is not logic, right? They are still very much captivated by the stories or emotional fulfillment of the scammers in Love Scam. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now, back to my conversation with my co-hosts, Claire Huang and David Sun, and our guest, Ms. Fiona Chong, Vice President of Compliance at CoinHako. So, um, like you mentioned, the top three scams are tech support, investment, and love scams. I mean, these are very traditional kind of scams we've seen throughout the years, you know, that have kind of moved over to crypto. But I want to talk about something that's a bit more uh, new, the latest trends kind of thing, specifically for crypto. Uh, I think there's some uh, of these like crypto drop things, live streaming things that go on. And I think a few people have fallen for that kind of scams whereby they've kind of given up their wallet and everything in hopes of getting, you know, some sort of crypto drop. Um, has kind come across any of such cases? No, we haven't really come across those cases yet. Not that I know of. Well, it could be because the tokens that we support, I think crypto drops are only available for tokens on certain native chains. While we list 60 over tokens on our platform for trading, for price exposure, buying and selling, we do not enable every token for sending and receiving. If the users send their native token to a particular place that makes it eligible for airdrop, then yes. But we do not enable tokens which we perceive to have high level of difficulty when normal people could easily utilize the tokens on the native blockchain. I think that is how we have the interests of our users at heart. You know, we do not enable tokens for transactions if they are deemed to be a kind of difficult token to transact out there on the native blockchain. Fiona, I'm a bit confused here. Do you think you could be a bit more specific about what kind of tokens or you know, even cryptocurrencies which you think are more um, susceptible to scams? Would you say that 
there are certain categories that are more, um, I suppose, dangerous. Right. So I think broadly speaking, there are but this is super generic, but there are two kinds of tokens out there, privacy and non-privacy coins, right? So there are tokens such as uh, Money Row, XMR, or Zcash, ZEC. So they are privacy tokens. They are coded in a way that purposely obfuscate. They purposely block the details, which makes tracing of the tokens rather difficult. So those are known as privacy coins. So for those privacy coins, they are definitely higher in fraud or anti-money money laundering risk. So we do not allow transactions for those. As for other regular tokens, mainstream tokens, and your question is, you know, what are the tokens that are more susceptible? I would say rather than more susceptible, I think that the more common tokens being used in fraud are the mainstream tokens only because it's widely available and it's easier to move them around through various exchanges or wallets. And that would be Bitcoin, Ethereum, just due to the accessibility of moving the tokens. And I'm curious to know, because um, when funds go from bank to bank in a normal scam, uh, sometimes the banks can co-op their counterparts and freeze the transactions. But when they are transferred from one exchange to another, can you share a bit more about how the different crypto exchanges work together to you know, stop the flow of funds? Right. I think rather than you know working with... We do not have such a unique system where I can reach out to another crypto exchange, especially we do cross-borders and so seamlessly. We actually have very intimate uh, relationship with the authorities, mainly the anti-scam center, for timely intervention. When we notice a transaction being flagged to us, our officers, which works seven days a week, all on shifts, we will immediately escalate the case to the anti-scam center intervention officer, whom will reach out to the user for further intervention you know, to further understand the stories, why this transaction is happening and whatnot. Sometimes it could be a legitimate transaction, but we wouldn't really know until the officers reach out to the users and query them. Fiona, you talked about how uh, that department is actually quite busy, right? Can you give some numbers as to, you know, or a sense of how many such scams verified, of, of course, have you seen, you know, at Konhako? And has it changed during the pandemic as, uh, you know, has it peaked during the pandemic? Because if you look at blockchain research group Chainalysis uh, report, they said that scammers stole uh, 6.2 billion US dollars from victims worldwide last year. So that is 80%, up 80% from a year ago. So it's it seems that uh, during the pandemic, it was a fertile environment for scammers to come out. Yeah. Right. I think that rather it being the pandemic itself, I think scam activities have a direct correlation with whether the market is up or down, whether it's green or red. If the market is very profitable, I would say generally the human emotions of greed really levels up a lot. And that's when a lot of scam activities take place. So currently, when the market is pretty down right now, it's in the red. I would say that the scam activities have scaled down. Could be several reasons. You know, people's level of greed has decreased. They are less certain in cryptocurrency and maybe scammers may find it less lucrative since the prices have plunged. Yeah. Um, so at CoinHaku itself, you know, are you able to give a sense of what are the losses like or how many victims you have seen and whether it's gone up, it's gone down? So prior to May, when the market was still greenish, we have a higher volume of scams taking place. I would say that every quarter, 
we salvage about above a million dollars. We claw back that amount of monies back for our users. Claw back from the scammers. We are not able to claw back from the scammers because once the transaction has gone out, it's irreversible. Or perhaps it, it may be reversible, but there are so many technical difficulties to it to retrieve it. So how we manage to save those monies is once it's flagged on our system, we practically halt that transaction and freeze it until we have investigated thoroughly, until we have reached out to the authorities and they have given us a confirmation that the funds are good to go, only then do we release the funds. But if not, that funds will be pending with us until we have more clarity on the purpose of the funds and where it's going to. Okay, so uh, you're able to halt the transactions. I'm a bit puzzled here because, you know, uh, we would have thought that uh, the transactions would be real time. So how do you actually manage to do that? So ideally... We would also want to be as seamless as possible for the customer's experience for it to be real-time. But I think for the purpose of anti-money laundering and of course as fraud, we are able to, in our system, put a pause before we process that transaction itself. So internally in our system, once it hits any of our root engines, that transaction will not be processed. It will be flagged to another route to the compliance officers. So Fiona, scammers are getting smarter in that sense. And also, if you look at the experience of traditional finance institutions like banks, obviously, you know, there's a threshold. They have this thing where the alert comes when you hit a certain threshold for, you know, an amount for a transaction. Are scammers targeting crypto getting smarter that way too? Because if I'm a scammer, then I would then make the amount as under that threshold just so it goes through because then you don't have the red flag and you wouldn't take it as a suspicious activity. Are you seeing more and more of those? Um, rather than saying seeing more and more of those, I think this is actually a common thing that's happening. It's a BAU for us, business as usual, that people who want to deal with illicit activities, not only scam, other kind of illicit activities, they will always try to circumvent our thresholds. And we can tell that by, you know, by observing. Just only an example, if we had a $1,000 threshold and... When they had tried to send $1,000, it was flagged out and it didn't process. They will try to send $900.99. So from seeing patterns of like 999 899 799 or seeing how scammers are trying to test our transaction monitoring limits or parameters, we always have to be very diligent and revise our parameters when we notice that transaction values which scammers input or users input are trying to circumvent our rules. So that is something we definitely keep a very keen eye on. So Fiona, what are some of the other challenges faced by uh, exchanges like yourself? I think in relation to scam, one of the challenges that I would say as an exchange or as a compliance officer is actually to understand the evolving products out there. Because I think there are several products out there. I'm not an expert, but perhaps in, in the NFT space or in the Web3 or, or it could be dealing with smart contracts. And I think that compliance officers will have to educate themselves well enough on the products before we can launch an effective investigation as to whether that transaction is actually legitimate for perhaps a smart contract or whether it's scam-related. So I think that is one of the larger technical, I wouldn't say barrier, but one of the things that we have to overcome through quite a lot of hard work, through studying. So Fiona, you know, some experts are actually already expecting more people to fall prey to these scammers as people around the world are trying to beat inflation, 
right? Now we have a cost of living crisis. So uh, do you expect that as well as they look to crypto as an alternative asset class? Right. So I think I'll just comment my observation in the Singapore space because I think people from different jurisdictions have different risk appetite and how they want to hedge their money, right? So I believe Singapore currency is relatively stable. I think that the Singaporeans or, or the citizens here or those that deal with the Singapore currency might not be looking to hedge inflation using cryptocurrencies, which could be a more volatile medium of money as compared to our Singapore dollars, which is very stable and strong. So, uh, Fiona, maybe you want to share a bit, you know, you, you mentioned just now about love scams and crypto. Maybe you can share a particular memorable case with us? Sure. So I think that there was this person, a user, a male user, who upon uncovering that he was a scam victim, he recounted his experience with the how he had interacted with the scammers. He said that he was going through a very tough, emotional period of time for over eight months. And actually the scammer had helped him to tide over this emotional difficulty. So after that, they decided to take a step further and the scammer had suggested that he should bring her over to Singapore. So he started sending pockets of monies for her visa transactions, for her living expenses and the arrangements to potentially, you know, move her from another country into Singapore. So... It was memorable to us because upon uncovering... Okay, so we uncovered this finally when the guy threw our declaration to us, said that he was withdrawing a very large Bitcoin amount to purchase a house in Singapore to live with her. So that flag up on our rules. We thought it was a bit fishy. We had referred his case to the authorities, to the anti-scam intervention officers, who later uncovered, you know, he was a love victim. But what was more impactful was that we realized that he had also utilized several crypto platforms to remit monies to her. So I think where we really found victory was that we managed to save the large Bitcoin withdrawal on our platform and also deter him from potentially remitting monies out from other crypto exchanges to the scam lover. Are you able to share how much or roughly how much that the Bitcoin transaction was? Because you're talking about enough money to buy a piece of property in Singapore. Surely it's quite a significant sum, right? Yes, I think well, this is just uh, in my own personal opinion. Amounts that are significant are usually in the six figures. So Fiona, it's really interesting this case. Can you tell us more about when it happened? Oh, this is rather recent. It happened within this year. So how many similar type of you know, scam cases do you come across uh, every year? Every year. I think we'll break it down to monthly because I think, of course, when, like I mentioned, when the market is green, we see more scams occurring and when the market is red, we see it dip. But I think averagely a month, we, we will detect at least 100, at least. At least 100 cases per month. At least, yes. And then you're talking about being able to claw back, what, at least a million dollars per quarter. Generally from our past statistics. Well, so there are a lot of people actually dealing in crypto in Singapore in that sense. Whether they are dealing in crypto or whether they have fallen prey to scammers and are exposed to cryptocurrency for the first time, yeah, I, I think we should take that into consideration because I think a lot of tech support schemes or even potential love scam victims may not have dabbled with cryptocurrency. They had only set up the account under the instructions of the scammers or the fact that they had relinquished their personal data to the scammers and the scammers are the ones who sign up 
for the cryptocurrency accounts. So going back to the case about the guy who fell prey to the love scam, so what happened to him in the end? We managed to save his transaction, the large Bitcoin withdrawal, but I do not know what happened to him in the end, but at least we had managed to save his monies for that particular transaction and to prevent him from losing monies at other crypto platforms that he had been sending monies out. Uh, so maybe you can share with us some of the measures that people should take or some sort of mindsets that people should have so they don't fall prey to scams involving crypto. Definitely. Whenever anybody asks you for money, just be extra careful. Anybody should come to you asking for money, to transfer money or whatever. I think always be very rational. Think about the situation first. But I think first and foremost, customers can build that awareness by educating themselves, by reading what is cryptocurrency. Just even a very basic knowledge would help. How does cryptocurrency work? What are the different types of mainstream cryptocurrencies are? And also... As a crypto exchange, we do put out a lot of knowledge-based articles on typologies of scam or even, I think, not even crypto companies, but even banks I've seen, they put out very elaborate articles on specific scams that happens. How does it happen? And what should you do? Should you encounter such a case? I think that the education is very important for, as a first step, in order for users to subsequently have self-awareness. But I mean, you're, you're still saying that, you know, that on average, there's still 100 people at least, you know, falling prey for such scams. Is there some sort of emotional element to this? Definitely. I think that various scams works on different emotional needs of individuals. So for tech support scam, pretty clear cut, it, it usually leverages on fear. You know, when somebody comes to you and say, look, your computer has been hacked, your mobile has been hacked, your bank account has been compromised, really there's a lot of anxiety and fear that kicks in. And a secondary factor could be that the individual may not be very tech-savvy as well. That could be a contributing factor. For investment scams, uh, I would say that it leverages a lot on greed, you know. And I would say that even some people, they have measured the risks versus rewards. They think like if I put in $10, I will just only lose $10, but it may go to $1,000, $10,000. I think that's some of the mindset that people have. And when they succeeded in having moved that $10 to $20, they think, now I'm going to put $1,000. I think it's going to go to a million. And I think it is greed that fuels this weakness and hence they fall prey to investment scams. For love scam, I would say it, it leverages on the emotion of loneliness. A lot of people may be lonely during COVID or even post-COVID, they may not readapt to society. But I think regardless of whether it's COVID or not, there are always people out there who may experience loneliness, whether it's for love or whether it's for platonic friendship. And scammers who recognize this weakness in the individuals are also very patient to nurture the kind of emotional needs that our lonely users or users who experience loneliness may feel. So each of these scams, I would say, predominantly has a very large clinical emotional user needs to it. Mm. Thanks for sharing with us more of you now about, you know, the different scams and how they prey on different needs. But I'm curious beyond just uh, having a certain mindset, are there any practical tips you have for cryptocurrency users when we save? Like for example, should they never relinquish their private keys to any strangers? Could you share a bit more on that? Definitely. I mean, when you um, some tips that, you know, users should always be careful about. 
I think relinquishing private keys is, is one step further. But I think in general, do not expose your personal data out there because I think personal data also has a very strong connection with know your customer, KYC data, which will enable bad actors out there to set up accounts in your name without you knowing. So always safeguard your personal data. And of course, never relinquish controls of your mobile devices, laptops, all those to scammers. And definitely do not relinquish any of your private keys or passwords to any external parties. So thanks, Fiona, for coming on the show and sharing all the insight. Likewise, it was a pleasure. And that's a wrap for Stop Scams, a new podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm David Sun. I'm Claire Huang. And I'm Jessie Lim. Once again, don't forget to share this podcast episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to read our Stop Scams articles, there's a link in our podcast text description below. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.